I'm a little out of breath. I had to run to my office real quick and get my notes. Um, I'm actually just going to take a few minutes tonight, and I, I just got a surprise today. I've got good friends in town. Um, Ian and Connie McGuigan are here visiting, and they're here with the, I'm sorry, I'm out of breath, um, the McGinty's. And uh, the McGinty's, and it's just, these are two families that have meant a whole lot to Melinda and I over the years. And um, I got a chance when we were up in the Northeast uh, to speak at your congregation. And then when I found out he was here, I was like, can you do class tonight? And so um, I want to share some thoughts with you, but I'm, I'm, I'm just so excited to be able to sit uh, uh, at Ian's feet and listen to some of him. I, there's so much wisdom and, and so much that I know that you guys have been through in your ministry and so it's going to mean a whole lot for me just to hear from you guys tonight. Uh, but I'm going to share some words um, just to kind of introduce this topic. And I'm going to catch my breath. And uh, let's go ahead and start with a prayer. Oh my God, I just um, I just want to pause. And, and and I don't do that often enough, often enough in my life. And just recognize your presence and recognize you as king. Uh, Father, there's so much depth to you, and there's so much depth to your word. I just, I'm, I'm still um, excited about just stopping and thinking and spending time in your word and in your presence. I just, I pray that you'll bless Ian and bless his thoughts tonight. Um, I thank you so much for the way you've worked with him through trials and through victories and through everything uh, that he's held on to you as as his rock in his life, and I just praise you, Father, for an opportunity uh, for my family here to get to know him. It's in the name of Christ we come before you. Amen. Um, I've been uh, I've been really thinking about this location, the Mount of Olives, and uh, this is a topic that I'm just going to kind of introduce, but um, uh, this is a place that you've probably associated uh, in the past, particularly with Jesus' moments in the garden where, where he wept. Um, this was a place that was very, very special to Christ. It says this in Luke twenty-one thirty-seven, that each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. Uh, this place, uh, and um, some of you have been there before, but this place uh, was was so named because of the olive groves that were on on the mountain. Um, this is a picture of a cave that was, um, I'm not sure exactly what year this cave was discovered, uh, but this cave that is on the Mount of Olives is almost certainly a place where Jesus would have spent the night with his disciples. It was Gethsemane. This was the location of an olive press. There were three olive presses in, inside of this cave on the Mount of Olives. And uh, they have evidence that this is most likely a place they would have spent the night. If not, it would it would make a whole lot of sense that uh, certainly you would press olives in a place that was sheltered from the rain and from the elements, and it was a place that they also used for storage, but also a place that the disciples may have spent the night. There's a small chapel there now. Um, I'm going to go through a couple of slides here. This really impressed me. Uh, the largest Jewish cemetery in the world is on the Mount of Olives. Um, there are 150,000 tombs on the Mount of Olives. Look at that. Is that not something? And if you were standing at a distance, um, just some different pictures of all of these tombs that cover the Mount of Olives. If you were standing at a distance, the sun rises, and this is why the Mount of Olives was so sacred to the Jews. If you're standing in the temple, the sun rises directly over, how about this, all of those tombs. And, and there was this prophecy 
um, in Malachi. And it says uh, that the, this is the last prophecy given in the Old Testament about the coming Christ, that the sun will rise with healing in its rays. And it will rise over Jerusalem. And this idea of associating the Mount of Olives with the coming of Christ, but particularly, and this is what blew my mind away just to introduce Ian's topic, as a place of weeping. Did you know Jesus wept three times in the Gospels? All three times he's on Mount Olivet. This is where David went when he was fleeing from Absalom. And it says he went out and he went on the mountain of Olives, Mount of Olives after being betrayed by a friend. Goes up on the Mount of Olives and weeps bitterly. And Christ, after being betrayed by a friend, goes up on the Mount of Olives and weeps bitterly. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, right before Lazarus is raised, where it says Jesus wept. You know, where is he on Bethany? Bethany is on the southern slope of the Mount of Olives. When he's coming down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, and he wails, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I've longed to gather you under my wings as a hen gathers its chicks, but your house is... And he says, you were unwilling, and now your house is left desolate. This was a place of weeping. It was a place of pain. It was a place where kings went and wept. And it was just something that really impressed me when I was looking about at this place what this meant with the coming of a Messiah and a Messiah and a king that loved his people enough, both in David and in Christ, that he wept over the people. It's a place, and I don't know, you could confirm this, Van and Marvin have been there, other people, but I imagine it's a place that you have a good view of Jerusalem. Um, it's a place that you could go and stand and pray and see the temple and see the people and just lift them up in prayer. This is what the place meant um, um, uh, to the Jews. And so I just kind of wanted to introduce uh, the topic tonight with this idea of the Mount of Olives um, and the tears of a king. But I don't want to take any more of your time, Ian, to be honest with you. I'm going to hand this over to Ian from there. Thanks, Bruce. Okay, there's no hiding it. I am an Irishman. I thought I might try to do a Louisiana accent, but I don't think I would get away with it. Uh, not only am I an Irishman, we're going to have a reading from a, uh, a brother from Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, I want to touch on the text that uh, Jeff already mentioned tonight, where David goes uh, onto the Mount of Olives and weeps. I'd like us to... Uh, well, you're familiar with the text, I know that, uh, but I'd like to read a portion of the text, uh, verses 13 through 37 in Second Samuel 15. So that's 13 through 37 in Second Samuel 15. Uh, Paul will read that for us, and then uh, I'd like this to just go through the text. Uh, we'll uh, discuss this. I'd like a kind of back and forth. We are limited for time, so if uh, we do go off on a tangent, I'll pull us back in the right direction again. But ultimately, we're wanting to see the parallels between uh, David and Christ, and we'll, we'll work our way to get there today or this evening. So, uh, Paul, if you you would, uh, this is going to Paul's going to read Second Samuel fifteen thirteen through thirty seven, and as he reads it, um, I'd like you, us to think about David's situation how bad it is. We want to think about how bad a situation he's in. We want to think about uh, what he's thinking about in the midst of this situation with Absalom. 
Uh, as you know, Absalom has rebelled against him. Uh, but we want to think about where his thoughts are. We want to think about his request to God. We want to think about uh, if these prayers are answered and how they're answered. And then we want to see the parallels between da- uh, David uh, and the Christ. So if you would, please, Paul. And my best Louisiana accent. Here we go. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, at least he overtake us and quickly bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all of his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people were after him. And they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him. And all who were Cherizites and Petherites and the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Atila the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go and I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Atala answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, whatever my Lord shall be, whatever from death or life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Atiah, Go, then pass on. So the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. And Abathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they sat down the ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him, do, let him do to me what it seems good to him. Then the king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Amaz, your son, and Jothan, the son of Abathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until the word comes from me, from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of, the God, ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went before, barefoot, with his head covered. And all the people were with him, covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told to David, Ahithophel was among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into the foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to him, with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. 
are not Zadok and Abatha the priest with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell Zadok and Abatha the priests. Behold, their two sons were with them, Amaziah, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abathah's son. And by them you shall send to everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Thank you, Paul. Okay, so um, how bad is David's situation here? You have a comment? Raise your hand. I will outweigh you. Be assured. Awkward silence doesn't bother me. How bad is David's situation? We have a hand. Describe that. Describe. Describe. How, describe that for me. What does "pretty bad" mean? Is he is he sure is he sure Absalom's ready for business here? Who, do, who does he think Absalom's going to going to kill? Yeah, who else is he? When David's when the, in the in the situation, who's David concerned about? Go back to the text again. When he hears the hears the message of Absalom's rebellion, turns to his servants and he says, "What let." Let who? Yeah, he talks about Ahithophel, but he said, but in, fir, in verse, uh, it must be 14 there. So David said to all the servants who were with him in Jerusalem, arise and let who? Flee. Sorry? Us, right? So he's saying, let us flee. So who's he concerned with there? Is he concerned with his own life? I'm, I'm getting out of I'm getting out of time here, guys. I think he's concerned more for for his for his followers, those who have been faithful to him. Yes, this is a nuss thing for David. Now, it's important to keep in mind the man's in the middle of a life and death situation, and he's looking around and he's saying, "Who's at stake here? It's us, right? Now, pagan king." What's a pagan king going to do when there's a rebellion? He's going to hightail it out of there with his escort, escort and try to rally the troops somewhere else. David is looking at this as an us thing. Now, when his troops line up later on, you've got the Ittai, the Gittite. Um, you've got uh, the Carthites, the Pelthonites. Uh, David says, what to them? These are These are his elite troops, his... Uh, kind of, in a sense, mercenaries. They've come over to David from uh, from pagan tribes. And uh, David says what to them? What's he say to Ittite, to Gittite? Sorry? Why? Why? 
the conversation's a little interesting here, how that, how that goes on. Yeah, I think that, I think uh, this is a, a conversation between a commander and a sub-commander, and uh, the language might not be taken literally. But what they, but ultimately, what David is concerned about is who? Them. Damn, sorry, sir. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. 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 Jeff. Absolutely huge. Later on, we're going to see that when uh, they're going to go into battle. He tells, um, can't remember who it is, he tells him to, to spur Absalom. So there's all this kind of conflict going on. But what I want to press on you here is, in a life and death situation, his focus is on others, on those who are exposed to danger. Now, do we know anyone like that on his betrayal night? When they went into the garden? Yes, he said, who do you want twice? And when they answered, we want you, he said, well, then come, but you don't want all these other people with you. So let these men go, right? And then when he was questioned, he goes in before the, the priests, he's questioned, and they were pressing him about who? They wanted information about his disciples, Right, text says they wanted information about them. Jesus gives them nothing. So you, we, we we see this. So what? So what are we seeing here then? When we look at David, we look at Christ. What are we? What are we? What are we seeing here in the life and death situation? Sorry. Yes. Yes, for sure. Other people count. Now, how do we do in the midst of our life and death situations, in the midst of our really difficult, hard trials, when we're being stretched out to breaking point, when the cross is getting heavier than we can bear? Who do we tend to be number one on our mind? I'll tell you, it's me, for me. I'm number one in that situation. How do we get Ian out of this? How can Ian get some relief? God, why don't you take Ian's pain away? What about you? Am I the only person in the room? What's Christ calling us to then?
Now, is this easy, easy stuff we're talking about here? No. But, but this is the life of the disciple. But I don't know if you have experienced what I've experienced. If I can ever get my eyes off myself in the midst of my suffering, it's the only place I find relief. It's the only place that uh, there's relief. Now, David, so, so what we're seeing in David here is the fruit of the Spirit, that kind of selflessness, that concern for others. Um, and uh, we'll look at a few other things uh, that go on here. Uh, again, we are limited for time. Uh, I especially want to look at verses 24 through 29 when Sadok and the Levites arrive. Uh, they arrive bearing what? Sorry? The ark, right? They come with the ark. Who is Sadok? He's a high priest. Who are the Levites? Okay. Now, so how important is the ark to Israel? Yes. It's, it's the, in a sense, it's, it's the icon, the center, uh, which, the center, what does it speak about to the people? Speaks about God and God being where? Present with them, Connie. Okay, and now the high priest, how important a job does he have? Yes, because he goes before God and does what for the nation? Tones for their sins, right? And then the Levites, they're all holy as well. So how valuable is it to have these Levites, this high priest, and this ark in your possession? Especially during a civil war. Yes, yes. And what does it say to the nation? Yes. And in, and in the process of trying to uh, overthrow the king, they would have to do what when it comes to the ark and the Levites and the, pre, and the high priest? Yeah, they're going to be involved now, regardless of the charisma that Absalom has, and he has charisma. This would be a serious roadblock in the way of an attack on David. But what does David do with it? Yes, he sends them back, right? He sends them back into the city, and he sends them back with the ark. He sends the priest, Sadok, the priest back there, and he sends the Levites back. What could he have done? Had them stay, surrounded the camp, at least be there as a, a, an option along the way. You know, uh, hold back Absalom's attack, maybe reason we have the ark here. We'll, we, we could barter with this. Do you remember Saul when he, he interacted with the ark? How did he do with that? Yes, but in this situation, David doesn't, right? Uh, now, so what's David placing his trust in here? In God, right? When he sends the ark back and he sends the priest back, what is he not placing his trust in? Yes, 
symbols of religion, right? They, uh, uh, and and uh, everything that goes with that, because remember, Israel is a theocracy, so there's politics involved here as well. Uh, but David doesn't put his faith in uh, the religion or in the politics. Uh, what can we learn from David when it comes to the struggles in our lives in his returning the ark? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that his time running away from Saul trained his mind. He was returning to that frame of mind saying, God was my rock when I lived in caves. Yes. He was everything to me when I had nothing. Yes. I'm going back to dependence completely. Absolutely, because the language he uses here when he's speaking to the priest is very similar to what he says in his other times of pressure. So, uh, now for us... Um, do we ever get into the frame of mind in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, when the cross gets too heavy? Is I need to throw religion at this thing? You ever find yourself thinking, I'm not reading my Bible enough? You ever feel like, I really got to get down there and break bread today? I'm not going to miss another Sunday. We ever get there? Now, all of those things are good, right? The scriptures. Prayer, I'm going to pray more. I'm going to uh, participate in the worship more. I'm going to serve more. All those things are good. But when it comes to real suffering and real trouble and real, real, real trials, where does our hope lie? In God. Is it possible that those things can get in the way of our trust in God? Now, who would be behind that? kind of wily and wicked thought or thinker might be behind uh, getting us focused on Scripture instead of our focus trusting in the living uh, God who's amongst us or focus on our perfecting the ritual or focus on us serving more in the midst of our trouble. Who might be behind that? You know, I was just thinking, he's, he's just not too far removed from the story of Samuel. I mean, obviously David is so close to Samuel and he would have been so so familiar Mm. Yes. Why do we go there? In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, why do I end up, and I'm, like, I'm just like you, why do I think, Ian, I need to read more scripture, son. This is, you know, you need to get, get back and read Romans again, and I wonder, because Romans is a big argument, you know, and so you, you, you break that off, you've sinned. You can't read it in sections. Uh, why do we go there? Why do we think? Okay, yes, yes. So there's, there's powers of darkness in the heavenly realms that we're battling with that want to destroy us and want us to get focused on those things. But what is it about the ritual? What is it about the reading? What is it about the praying more that we I suddenly think, if I do this, I'll get relief? Okay, I, sorry, I thought I saw your hand. 
Yes. Yes. And there's a word, there's a word that describes that. There's, there's a, a word that we're, something we're looking for there in that situation when things are out of control and we're really suffering. Sorry? It can become an idol. Connie? And at the bottom of lack of control is lack of what? There's a faith issue in there. What about the word power? I'm in a powerless situation. I, I, I want, I'm looking for power to get me out of this, to give me, the, you know, as David's in that situation, and he didn't turn to the Ark of the Covenant, he didn't turn to the priest, he turned to God. And I think that's when it happens most with me. I don't know if it's with you. It's usually in that situation of powerlessness. Now, Jesus, when he's in the garden... They're coming to take him. What does he do? Does sorry? Yeah, he starts taking. He actually he starts taking control. You see that real quickly. Uh, he's not telling them what to do as he asks them uh, questions. But Jesus, in the face of his suffering, Peter, he says. He said, put your sword away, Peter, because I could call what? 10,000 angels, right? We say 10,000. When you break it down, it's 72,000 angels because he talks about legions. Now, two angels went into Sodom and Gomorrah. What they do to Sodom and Gomorrah? What can 72,000 angels do? That's it. They could do the whole universe in, and that wasn't all of them. So when it comes, when he's in a powerless situation and he had the power to undo them all, what does he do? Yes. Does he, who's he surrender to? Okay, so, and, and Jim, he, it's Jim, right? Yes. Yeah, he's surrendering to the Father's will. And ultimately surrendering to Father's will because, why does he do that? Yes, but ultimately the will of the Father in this situation is, is the cross, and the cross is going to do what? Yes, it's got a, Connie? His motivation is love, right? But ultimately, in that love, what's going to happen to the kingdom of darkness, that which is trying to overthrow the right king here? It's going to be defeated. It's going to pull it down. So for us, we find ourselves in the same situation, and this is not easy. When we're hurting, we're suffering, the cross is crushing us. If I'm not to run to more Scripture reading, if I'm not to run to more praying, and none of those things are bad things, we all know a disciple's going to do this in the right context. If we walk in the footsteps of Christ, what are we to do? That's true. But we say, not my will. Yes. 
And when it comes to my taking charge of this situation, is that what I'm going to do? Sorry? Yes, 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 he does, right? He does for sure. And remember what Paul said, when I am weak, I am strong, right? So in that situation, uh, we don't have time to discuss how we might better do this, but to recognize my weakness, to recognize I'm in a, uh, I'm in a situation where there is, there is, I have no power. All power lies in the Almighty. Then as a disciple, I'm called to recognize this and commit myself into the hands of the Father. Now, is that easy to do? Why not? Why don't we just, like machines, click in and go, my whole life's falling apart. Family's falling apart. House just burnt down. I've got all kinds of sicknesses that are incurable. Flick a switch and go, it's all in God's hands. This will be cool. We do, and trust is a relational activity. And we're not robots. We're not machines. These truths aren't to flick on a switch so that I walk, we walk through a, uh, like robots through a fire. Because we see Jesus in the garden. Was he just breezing through that thing? No. In fact, uh, we see after the angels ministered to him, uh, he was sweating like drops of blood. So, uh, so, so, some uh, things to keep in mind here as, as we plow along. So we're not going to turn to religion. We're not going to turn to religious men. We're going to turn to God. That's not easy to do, but by the grace of God and by the help of God, we're going to submit to the Father in the midst of our trials. Now, David does that very thing, and in in, in where we wanted to get to, he ends up on the Mount of Olives, and uh, it says when he goes up there, he, he, he's weeping, verse 30, uh, and following, and um, why is he weeping? It's definite serious agony going on here. Yeah. But you're but you're right. I have to go back to what you're originally one of your original points. I loved what you said with the this isn't just about David, this isn't just about his broken heart. This is about a kingdom that's also being broken. Yes. Yes. Now Absalom and and we have time to trace the history, I'm sure Jeff Jeff's done it with you, is um Absalom killed his brother Amnon. Why'd he do that? Sorry? He raped, he raped Tamar, right? And uh, whose son was Amnon? Well, that, sorry, that's obvious. David's son, right? But, they, but Amnon committed sexual immorality, right, with Tamar, right? Now, what had David done prior to that? What it, so, so Bathsheba, right? So he had sexual immorality with Bathsheba. He had, uh, and what did he do to Bathsheba's husband, Uriah? Killed him, right? Where, 
Sin, sin does not make sense unless you're in the middle of it. <laughs> and it's like the most sensible thing to do. Uh, but uh, so after Amnon, after he uh, committed adultery at Bathsheba, Amnon rapes Tamar. What does David do about Amnon? Doesn't do anything. Absalom steps in and murders him. What did, what did David do about Absalom murdering his brother? There was a five-year, yeah, but then there was a reconciliation. But under the law, you know, you shed the blood of man, by man your blood would be shed. So why, and again, we don't have time for it, but why is David leaving these things unaddressed? Sexual immorality with the rape of Tamar, the murder of um, Amnon by uh, Absalom. Is, and I put it to you this, is it because he might have been compromised? Sure, it's difficult to condemn someone for something you're guilty yourself. Yes, and then when Nathan comes to David, you remember, and, I, and we're going backwards again, when Nathan comes to David... Uh, he says, you're not going to die, but there's going to be repercussions for his actions. Now, all of this that's coming upon David at this time when he's on the Mount of Olives is what? Sorry? The repercussions are here, right? This is a fulfillment. Uh, now Absalom's going to go and uh, commit sexual immorality with the concubines. All of that stuff's going to go on. Uh, so when David's weeping here, there's all different dimensions, but is there anything in here he might be weeping about? You think? You see this all coming together? You think? Okay. So I think there's a multitude of things coming together here. Uh, it could be his own sin, right? That he's seeing the big picture, and I'm the one that, that, that was at the, you know, I, I started this thing going. And then there's the thing with this boy and, and, and all of that, of course. Uh, now, when Jesus uh, is in the garden and begging the Father in sweat, you know, drops of blood, why is he doing that? Why is he weeping when he goes up to Jerusalem? Anything to do with his sin? No. Total, total opposite here. I really like the con- you know, connection you make with David because, you know, just as best as I can, and I'm not familiar enough with the Psalms, but I'm just trying to picture all 150 Psalms here, at least the ones that are by David. And, and knowing his heart, knowing who he was, and maybe seeing, like you're saying, the big picture, how sin has defeated us. Not just me, not just Absalom, just sin has defeated us. Yes. Yes. Weeping over the big picture. You know, this this is it. And he says that night, this is your hour when darkness reigns. And just feeling the weight of sin, what it's doing to my people. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I like that big picture approach. You know? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's what, that's what we're seeing here. Now, in uh, all of this, and uh, Hushai, uh, after David hears Ahithophel is with the plotters, uh, what does he do? The word comes, Ahithophel's with him. Ahithophel is, a, is the vice president, and now he's with the rebellion. Well, what does he say? 
Well, after that, what does he say? Yes. So he, he calls out to the Lord, frustrate him. And then who arrives? Just then coming, walking towards him is who? Hushai the archite, right? Wise man. What's Hushai going to do later on when they're plotting to how to destroy David? What's he going to do with the advice of Ahithophel? He's going to tell the truth, but he's going to, he's going to level them. And that's going to bring down the whole evil empire, right? Now, who's in control in this situation? Do you see how quickly that prayer was answered? And all along the way here, step by step as he goes along, every prayer in this situation is answered. And it's answered in what form? It's people, right? That's important. Because if I think God's in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my, my you know, hardships and trials, and I'm looking for a power, him to do something powerful, what am I generally looking for? I'm looking to be saved, but what am I looking for if I'm really sick and I need... But if I'm sick and the doctors are saying, there's no hope here, I'm looking for, yeah, I'm looking for a... Click the fingers, Lord, you can do it. Oh, yeah, right. Jeff. I'm wondering now about the possibility. I'm going to go back to David sending the ark back to the city. Not just looking at it as, well, that's a chief icon. What really matters is God's presence. But maybe that's not simply a symbol for David. Maybe that's still representative of God's presence. And so what I'm going to do is send the ark back in the midst of all of this sin. I'm going to put what's representative of God in the middle of this situation. God is going to judge you. You know, and, and this is the verse that hit me, Isaiah 8. And this means a lot to a lot of us who have ever had anybody lie about us. Or you're in a situation where uh, you can tell Satan is scheming against you. Oh, absolutely. You know, this is Isaiah 8. It says this, devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand because God is with us. Uh-huh. And I was thinking, man, how perfect when he's saying, Ahithophel's counsel, destroy it. Put God in the middle of the situation. And he's going to reveal the truth. Yes, yes, good. And, and it's done through Hushai the archite. And now, uh, at times, and I don't know if you feel this way or you go through this, is, you know, God, I'm in such a financial crisis that this thing's collapsing here. I know you can, I know you've got the resources. What about a suitcase of cash? <laughs> it's, it's not a whole lot to ask. Right? Anonymous, unmarked bills, that kind of stuff. Right? Uh, my loved one is sick. They're really in pain. Everybody wants them to get better. What about a word from the throne room? And, and, and they're made well. My child's gone off the reels. They've lost the place. You know, uh, what about a dream or a vision for them? What about some kind of power here? We got crazy governments plotting crazy things. What about a few... You know, serious calamities happened in North Korea where, you know, the whole country gets wiped out. <laughs> you, know, you know, all of these things at times, I don't know if you ever find yourself in that kind of, these kinds of struggles where we're looking for power from God in those ways. Is that the power we see from God here? 
in this text, how's God going to turn the evil empire upside down? Through one old guy who's going to shuffle down there into this council and through his questions, this whole thing's going to collapse. Now, how does that change our idea of power? We're thinking lightning bolts, Sodom and Gomorrah moments, Red Sea openings. Does it say something to you that God can just take one man and and tear the whole thing down? Now, when it came to destroying Satan and his empire, what did God do to do that? Yeah, carpenter. Nobody. Didn't even have a a roof over his head. He was homeless. And there he goes up to that cross and he tears the whole kingdom of darkness down. Now keep this in mind. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. If God can do it with Hushai the Archite, what can he do through you? Do we see ourselves as that significant? Or do you tend to think, well, I try my best to be like Jesus. I go to church regularly. I try to help people. But in the big scheme of things, in God's economy, I'm not really up to much. I'm a struggling disciple. Do we ever get that mindset? You think Hushai ever went through life thinking, I've never really done anything big. (laughs) I've really never, you know, God, I I worship you. I'm your servant. I'll do whatever you call me to. And then this day, when the king needs his help, he arrives at the right time with the right timing and and destroys the whole thing. I put it to you, brothers and sisters. That's what he's doing through you. He's tearing the kingdom of darkness down. Christ working in you. Does it matter if we realize that? Or should we just mope around? At times I'm a moper. I'm more of a whiner and a whinger. Whinging really does sum up most of my life. (laughs) But does it matter that we walk around remembering who is in us and who's working through us and how he uses his power? Why, why does that matter? Yes, and, and all of those things you're describing all involve cross-like Suffering. Because when we win, we, we, we've won this thing already in Christ. We're more than conquerors. But what will our victory look like as we tear down the kingdom of darkness? If God uses his power in this way, what will it look like? What will it feel like as we're defeating the powers of darkness? What does victory look like for God in Christ? 
When was the greatest victory won, Connie? On the cross. So our victories are going to look like ticket tape parades right down the middle of Loveland. The greatest church in Loveland are here today. Uh, We're going to be interviewing them. Here's the minister. Here's his father that helped mold the man to get him to what he was today. Uh, You know, and they're going to be plods. They're going to be, you know, they're going to be on the front of the newspaper. You know, even the local politicians will come out because, hey, here's where the center of influence is in the town. Is that what it's going to look like? It's going to look like a cross. What's it going to feel like? Is it going to feel great? What did the cross feel like? A crucifixion. How do we like that idea? I'm going to go out victorious and uh, the sufferings of Christ are going to overflow into my life and into your life. It's been granted unto us not only to believe in Christ, but share in his suffering. Now, what's it? What, but, but lastly, and I'll leave you alone. Um, what comes after the cross? Is that where it ended? So he hung on the cross, he suffered for us, uh, he died for our sins. And we're all happy, we're all getting to go to heaven when we die. Is that where it ended? Now what happened on the third day they came to the tomb? He's risen from the dead. He did what he said he'd do. He's risen from the dead. So as we go through this cross-like experience as disciples of Christ, does it all end at the cross for us? Was there something more that will come on that third day when we embrace this thing? Resurrection power is at work in us. Not only when he comes, are we going to overcome the grave? Imagine just saying that. I just told you, you're going to beat death, right? You're going to overcome the grave as he overcame the grave. You're going to do it. But not only then, but now. Now. It's because you've all been there, right? You've been through the suffering. You've been through the pain. You've went to the Bible. You've read Romans again complete, completely. Maybe went into the Greek. Didn't take the pain away. Didn't take the suffering away. You went and put more money in the plate. Didn't heal the wife. Didn't heal the kid. You did all of that. And eventually, like me, you went, okay, God, This is your game, not mine. I'm weak, powerless, and he delivered us. And then we came out the other side of it, and were we changed? Did we come out stronger? Did we come out a little bit more Christ-like? That's what he's going to do. That's what he's doing in you and in me. Let me wrap this up. Uh, Let me give you some text just to uh, to wrap it up. Uh, As... Jeff already said, uh, Jesus is betrayed, uh, David's betrayed by close friends. Uh, David's uh, friends, though, they stay with him. Jesus is in the garden, and what do his friends do? They abandon him. Uh, in John 18, 1, Christ, 
crosses the brook Kidron. Mark 14:26, Christ petitions God with tears, as David does. And when David retreated from the oncoming army of Absalom, Christ in the garden does what? When they come as an armed mob. Yeah, he advances. He, he goes to them. You remember, they fall down uh, before him. Uh, but important for us to keep in mind all of this, how does it work out for David in the end? How does it work out for David? After this whole Absalom incident, confronting his sin, broken, Hushai goes down, frustrates the uh, plans of his enemy, and David gets what? Yeah, he gets victory even in the midst of suffering. Christ overcomes the cross, victory in the midst of suffering. What about you? Is God going to forget about you? You're going to be the first one that you went through suffering and it was a flop. <laughs> oh dear, yeah, God's like, oh, I'm really sorry. I kind of missed you in the line. No, that's the good news for us. We are going to bear this cross, but as we bear this cross, by the grace of God, the power of God, we're going to overcome this thing. Thank you for get, letting me speak to you tonight. It's been my pleasure. And spend time with this guy is a lot of fun too. So. Uh, Father, I just, uh, I, I do, I just, I, I pray God that um, we would, <laughs> just feel the excitement that I feel right now. I uh, just look into you and looking how you, you advance us in battle. We celebrate you. We celebrate the victory that you win every day in our lives in the cross. And I pray God that somehow we would experience the joy that even Paul felt. And if, if our suffering brings us closer into a walk with you and to a greater knowledge of you, then praise you for it. I praise you for being a God in our midst. I praise you, Father, for every battle that's being fought right now, for every one of us that's under a different attack from Satan. Uh, the God, that we just have to rest in this, that you are present, that you are here, and that you are a victorious king. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming tonight.